Uh, good morning, Whitefields. Good, morning. good to see you. So today, we're going to do something that I'm really excited about, and I hope you're excited about it too. I hope that you have that same enthusiasm that I do. We're going to start a study through the book of Genesis. Now that's, uh, that's biting off a big chunk, you know, for, for me as a pastor, that's like a daunting, ominous thing because it requires a lot of preparation, but I really do believe that it's going to be so worth it. And uh, my prayer is that as we study this book, which is so foundational and fundamental uh, as a church, that we would be just blessed and that we would be so enriched and that our love and our appreciation for our great God is just going to be deepened. So let's, let's pray that together as we get started this morning. Lord, we come to you and we just ask, Lord, for wisdom as we open your word. Lord, we ask that you'd help us to rightly divide the word of truth, Lord, and we need your spirit to give us insight and revelation this morning, Lord, not only to what this text means, but how it applies to our lives. So, Lord, we ask you to be here. We ask that your spirit would minister to us this morning for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, Genesis. Some people would ask, uh, if we are a New Testament church, then what are we doing studying the Old Testament? Shouldn't we go study the New Testament some more? Well, I think there's a very good reason for studying the Old Testament, and it's, it's really important that we understand why. And that is this, that from beginning to end, from page one to whatever page your Bible ends on, because they all end on a you know, different page number, but from the beginning to the end, the Bible tells one story, one unified story. It starts in Genesis, the book of beginnings, and it concludes in Revelation, the book of the end things, the last things. You see, the Old Testament and the New Testament are not at odds with each other, and we, we read the Bible incorrectly if we see it that way. Uh, we fail to read the Bible correctly if we just see it also as a random collection of religious writings or sayings uh, that at one time were joined together and bound into one big book. See, this Bible that we have, it is one grand story, right? It is what we call a grand narrative, which means it's a great story, a huge story that's made up of a lot of little stories. And the story of this book, that grand narrative, is the story of God's mission in this world. The story of how God created the world, and it was good. He created a good creation, but sin entered the world, and it corrupted that creation. And sin entered the world, and it led to death, physically and spiritually. But God, the two most beautiful words in the Bible, perhaps, but God... He steps in because of his great love, because of his generous nature. He redeems his creation, and ultimately he is going to restore his beautiful original intentions. This is the ultimate story of the world. This is the ultimate and true story of the world. And that is why we, as human beings, we have this propensity. We are drawn towards stories of redemption, aren't we? Look at the movies we watch. Look at the movies that we, the books we read. We love stories of redemption. We love stories of sacrifice, especially self-sacrifice. We love stories, we're drawn to stories that are focused on the, the battle between, the struggle between right and wrong and good and evil. And we have this just innate propensity to these things. Why? Because there is a grand story, the true story of the world, which is written on our hearts. It's built into us. Augustine, 
speaking about the importance and the interconnectivity of the Old Testament and the New Testament, he said this. Maybe you've heard it before. He said, the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. In fact, I would even go as far as to say that if someone does not have a good grasp and understanding of the Old Testament, then they will not be able to fully appreciate the New Testament. They will not be able to fully appreciate the life and work of Jesus. Uh, They will not fully grasp the weight and significance of the gospel. This book is God's story. It's the history of his dealing with mankind. And and if we want to grasp this story fully, we, we can't just uh, jump in somewhere in the middle. We have to go to the beginning and let God tell us his story from the beginning. The foundations also of a biblical worldview, how we see things, they're found here in Genesis. That's why it's so important that we have a good grasp of this book. Um, it's been said before by uh, a theologians. Uh, they, they put it this way. Imagine this. It's as if history is a dramatic play, and God is the playwright, and there have been acts and scenes before us, and we're just born into the middle of it. And we're looking around, and we're trying to figure out what's going on. We don't know our lines. We don't know what stage of the story we're at. We don't know who the heroes are. We don't know who the villains are. We have no idea who the playwright is. And we have no idea where the story begins or ends or what our role is or what our lines are. And so we end up in this way with a life of great confusion and perplexity. And that is why we need the book of Genesis. It gives us a bearing on all of those things. The book of Genesis tells us, as we're going to see today, as we're going to see for a few weeks to come as well, that we come from God. God is the playwright, and we are going to God. So where did we come from? Where are we going? And, and here in the middle, we belong to God. We're here to be in relationship with God and to work with Him on His mission. So we understand that our place in this dramatic, great dramatic play is that we're born into. We understand that our life has meaning and value and purpose, and we know where we came from, we know where we're going, and we know why we're here. That's why Genesis is important. Two questions we need to address before we get into Genesis, and these are the obvious questions that come up when anyone reads this book, is this. Number one, is this an accurate historical account? Or are these stories just rather legends, which are teaching fundamental principles, but not things that we should take as actual history? Years ago when I was in Hungary, I... I started meeting with this doctor friend of mine, and he had been raised as an atheist, and, uh, he was, but he was, he was interested in hearing about Jesus. So we used to get together and drink coffee and just talk. And so one day we're hanging out, and he tells me that he has this book at home of Jewish fairy tales that he likes to read to his kids. So I thought, oh, Jewish fairy tales, that sounds really interesting. I like to read, so why don't you bring your book of Jewish fairy tales next time we hang out? So next time he comes, he brings me this book and he hands it to me. I'm looking at this. This is a children's Bible. He's got a children. This guy's been reading his kids a children's Bible, but he considers these stories to be Jewish fairy tales. See, uh, the other question, uh, especially here in the first two or three chapters of Genesis, is, is this an accurate scientific account of the origin of the world and the universe? Now, the answer to both these questions is a solid and confident yes. 
Genesis is an accurate historical and scientific account. But one thing we must realize when we open up the book of Genesis is that we are looking at a very sacred text and a very ancient text. Uh, It was probably written about 1,400 years before the birth of Jesus, which means that today we are separated from this by 3,500 years nearly. And uh, this story writes the origin of the world in a very brilliant way, really. And we need to see that. We need to take it for what it's worth, what it's actually saying. It, It communicates the story of the origin of the world in a brilliant way because it speaks to nomadic shepherds 3,500 years ago in a way that they can appreciate it. And it speaks to biologists today and people who are interested in science in a way that's relevant to them as well. So although Genesis does deal with matters of science, we need to see that that's not its primary function. Its primary function is theological. However, where it does touch on areas of science, it's never been disproven. Where it does touch on areas of history, archaeological findings have verified it and backed it up. So we should have confidence that we are not reading Jewish fairy tales. We are reading the true account of the origin of the world and the history of the world. But we also need to see this is an ancient text which was not primarily intended to be like a modern science book or a modern history book. And because of that, it leaves a lot of people frustrated. Why? Because it doesn't answer questions that they wish it did. See, for example, it doesn't tell us the mechanics of how God created the world. It just tells us God created the world, right? It doesn't explain the existence of God. It just tells us God exists. It assumes it. Uh, Genesis, for example, speaking about history, it covers... 2,000 years of human history. That's almost as much as the rest of the Bible combined, right? In, in, in uh, chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5, we're looking at 1,600 years of human history in just four chapters. What happened during that time? Well, probably a lot. A lot of people were born, they went to work, they made stuff, they did stuff, but we don't know anything about it because it doesn't tell us a lot. And that's okay, because that's not its primary function. It's, it's not telling us everything. It's selectively giving us those things we need to know, because they're the most important to our understanding and our relationship with God. At its heart, that's what we need to see. This is a book about God. It, as we study it, what we're going to focus on is what it teaches us about who God is, what kind of God he is, what is his nature, what are his plans, what is his mission and his work, and what is our part in it. It is his story, you know. It's kind of cliche, but that's what they say. It's his, history is his story. And uh, it's true. This is like God's autobiography. And people say, well, if all these things happened, right, like over a thousand years before Moses was born— then how does he know the details of how it all took place? How does he even know about conversations that took place? Well, that's pretty clear-cut here. It's through revelation, by the Spirit of God revealing it to him. Hebrews 11, verse 3, it says that we know by faith that God created the heavens and the earth by his word. It takes faith to see that this was through revelation. Because anybody can hypothesize about how the earth came to be. But the only one who truly knows is the one who was there, and the only way he reveals to to us is not through our speculation, but by revelation, 
by the Spirit of God who is there in creation revealing it to the writers who wrote it down. And the only person who was there is God, so he tells us how creation came into existence. And here in verse 1, we have this great verse, right? Huge verse with these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How huge is that? How big is that? It tells us what? That God is preeminent. He's before all things. He is eternal. He has no beginning, no end. He is all-powerful. He created everything out of nothing. The existence of God, like I said, it's not explained. It's assumed. You know, he's God. He doesn't need to prove himself to us. The one thing the Bible does give us as proof for, for God's existence is the orderliness of creation. We look at the orderliness of creation, the complex systems of life, and what do they do? They attest to and they bear witness to the existence and the nature of our Creator. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day unto day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a huge statement. It's kind of like the Pledge of Allegiance. We hear it so many times that we have to really think it through. To, to really, we have to like purposefully let the weight of it drop on us, right? This statement is something which is called an amorism. Uh, if you're into literature. So an amorism is a cumulative statement. It means something like head to toe, right? Your belly button? Yeah, that's in between head and toe, right? Heavens and the earth? That's an amorism. It means everything. God created everything. That's what it's saying. What about the monkeys? Did God create them? Yeah, he created them. What, are cockroaches? Yes, that's part of it. In the beginning, God created everything. That means that matter comes from God. He didn't just take a big ball of mud and start shaping it. Matter comes from God. Life comes from God. We didn't spring from nothing for no reason. God didn't just form matter into stuff. He created matter from nothing. This is the doctrine of ex nihilo, or however you pronounce it. It means that God made everything from nothing. And uh, by his spoken word, as we're going to see. And I'll tell you this, the, uh, the implications of this are huge. Not just for what it means in the origin of the universe, but for what it means in our lives personally. Because think about this. If God is able to make something out of nothing, well, then that makes him absolutely 100% unique. Because I can't do that, and you can't do that. There's no one like him, no one who can create something, and in this case, rather, everything out of nothing. In Acts chapter 26, I love this statement. I love to think about this. When Paul the Apostle is talking to King Agrippa, he is on trial. And, uh, and Paul asks King Agrippa a question, which actually contains an even deeper, profound question, which all of us really need to ask ourselves. Here, here's what he says. In Acts chapter 26, verse 8, Paul asks Agrippa this heavy question. He says, why is it thought incredible by you, by any of you, that God raises the dead? Why do you think that's incredible? See, Paul is saying here, he's on trial, and he's saying, 
the reason that I'm on trial right now is because of my belief, my conviction that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. I'm on trial for that belief. And my question to you is, why would you think it incredible that God would raise the dead? And the, the fundamental underlying question that Paul is raising here is this. This is the question we need to ask ourselves. How big is your God? How big is he? How big is your, the God that you believe in? And uh, that is a question we all need to ask ourselves. We need to get that cleared up before we can move on. And that's an issue that's dealt with here in the very first verse of the Bible about how big God is. How big is this God we're talking about? Because if you have a big God, if your God is a big God, an almighty God who creates everything out of nothing just by speaking a word, he has no limitations at all, then why should we not think it incredible that God would do anything? The real question Paul's raising here is, why would you think it incredible that God would do anything? If he is God, then by nature he can do anything. Anything he wants. If he wants to raise someone from the dead, he can do that. That's not even a problem for him. It's, it's not God who's limited, see? It's us who have the problem. Because we have an assumption sometimes that God is kind of like us. And he has limitations, because we have limitations. But what we see here, and what we need to get cleared up before we can even move on in studying, is that he is almighty. He is all-powerful. He creates everything from nothing. There's nothing that's even hard for him. He doesn't break a sweat. There's no switch situation that's just too difficult for him, that wears him out, that stresses him out. And for you and I, that's important to know. In whatever situation we find ourselves in, no matter how huge that problem might seem, no matter how insurmountable it might appear to us, we need to know that for God it's not even difficult. It's not even something that stresses him out or worries him because he's a big God who can do anything. He can speak the universe into existence. He can create everything from scratch. Then your difficult situation, my trial... That's not too big for him. Do you know that? I hope you know that. So, so here we see that he's a big God. He's almighty. Nothing is even difficult for him. But if we know that he's able, in and of itself, maybe that's not enough. The question we would ask then is, okay, he's able. Sure, he's powerful. He's able to do anything. But the next question is, is he willing? Sure, he's, he's powerful. Sure, he's able to help. But the question for me is, and for you is, is he willing to help in my situation, in my family situation, in my work situation, whatever it might be? Here's what God says in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What does that tell us? It tells us that not only is God able to do all things, but he is willing to help meet your needs, no matter how big or small when you cry out to him. Is it not comforting to know that? For me, it's incredibly comforting to know this is the nature of the God that I, I serve, I worship, and I follow. He's a big God for whom all things are possible, and there's nothing that's even difficult. Not only that, he's a God who is not distant and disconnected, but is intimately concerned with your well-being 
and is willing to intervene in your situation. And he ultimately proved that willingness on the cross when he gave up everything to intervene for you and save you. What a wonderful, loving, compassionate, mighty God. Amen? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you can swallow that, then if you can handle the first verse of the Bible, then the rest is going to be a lot easier. Uh, Because the first verse of the Bible just lays it all out on the table. Hey, this is it. This is who we're talking about. This is who God is. This is the kind of God he is. This is how powerful he is. And if we get that straight here at the beginning, before we move on, this is a fundamental issue to our understanding of who God is. In our understanding of the nature of God, if it is skewed in some way, then our whole view of the world, our whole view of God's word, our whole view of ourselves, it's going to be skewed if we don't lay that foundation of who this God is, who created us, who we're talking about. He's almighty, altogether different, altogether unique and separate from anything else we're familiar with in this world. He's not creation. He is the creator. So let's carry on. Let's read verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So some Bible commentators say here between verse 1 and 2 that there's a time gap, and they would say that the earth became formless and void. They have reasons for believing that. This is called the gap theory, in which the earth, they believe the earth was corrupted and became formless and void, and that was a result of Satan and the rebellion of the angels against God. Now that's, um, like I said, there are reasons why people believe this. They have uh, verses to back that up. But it's still a theory. It's really hard to say concretely that that's what happened. But what we do see clearly in these verses on a, on a theological level is this. The Spirit of God is actively involved in bringing order into creation. He's bringing order into disorder. And that's what we want to talk about for just a second. What we're going to see in the following verses is that God speaks... And the Word of God, together with the Spirit of God, are going to bring order into this disorder. And we're told many times in the New Testament, actually, that Jesus was present and active in creation. I think I have some verses here up on the the, uh, screen. Colossians 1, verse 16. John 1, 1 through 3. Check them out. It talks about how Jesus was active in creation. So what we see here is a picture, really, because we got the Spirit of God, we got the Word of God, we have Jesus here. This is a picture of the triune God. And as some of you know, the Hebrew word here for God used in verse 1 is Elohim, right? Now the reason that's interesting is because the word for God in Hebrew is El, and the plural of that word is Elohim. So it's interesting, right, that it uses a plural form of the word God, and then here, if you want, you can even see this in, in English in verse 26 where we see that God speaks to himself and he says, let us create man in our own image. And at that point, the plural form, it comes out in our English text as well. So the picture this is drawing for us is, one, is God, who is one. There is one God, but there is some form of community of, of different persons even in this one God. And as we go through the Bible, This picture will become more and more clear. This picture of a triune being is developed and how how we find out that he is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
So here we have the first allusions to the Trinity, the triune nature of God. But what I want you to see here is this. Again, what is the work of the triune God in these verses? The Word of God, the Spirit of God, the Son of God, what are they doing? They're creating order where disorder has reigned previously. And the Word of God for you today, the Word of God for you and I today from this scripture is this, that God wants to create order in your life, in those areas where chaos and disorder have reigned. And he's going to do this, how? By his word, which has life-giving power. It's amazingly powerful. By his spirit at work within you and his son, Jesus Christ. That is the kind of God he is. That is the nature of the work of God in our lives. A few years back when I had just, uh, I had just moved to Eger to start our first church in Hungary, and I came back to the States for a visit, and I met with a pastor friend of mine. And we were talking, and he asked me a question. And he said, he asked me, what is your angle on the gospel for that community that God's called you to plant a church in? He's saying, understand correctly, what is the special emphasis on the gospel that God wants you to proclaim in that city? Because the gospel has so many facets that you could emphasize. And at that moment, I wasn't really sure. But I thought about it, and I prayed through it, because I thought that's a very good question. I want to think that through. Uh, I want God to show me that special emphasis that he wants to proclaim in this city, a special facet of the gospel that needs to be emphasized for that congregation. So after a while, I felt that the Lord spoke to me, and what he told me was this. Here's that angle on the gospel that I should emphasize in Agar. And it's this, that Jesus makes you normal right? That's what he does. And I started preaching that. That was the emphasis I had in those first years in Eger. Jesus makes you normal. And uh, when Jesus comes into your life and you receive the gospel, it transforms you and it heals your mind. It heals your life. You become a healthy person who thinks clearly, who sees things clearly, uh, who has a healthy relationship with God. You become a normal person. And I'll tell you what, we saw people being set free by that message. We saw people who had struggled with psychological issues, with depression. We saw people who were caught up in perversity and sin of various kinds. And it was great to see how God set them free. And he was just cleaning up their lives. And they were becoming healthy people all around in every way. In their relationships, in their thinking, in their their walk with God. And that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. This is the nature of the work of our triune God. He brings order where there has been chaos, where there has been disorder. How? By his word, his word which is so powerful that it speaks things into existence. By his spirit who's working in us, transforming us into his image. By his son and his finished work on the cross. By his blood and his constant intercession for us. And I believe that where there is chaos in your life, where you have disorder, God wants to bring order And if you'll open up your heart and allow him to do that, he will. Let's carry on with verse 3. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So here we go, the first day, Sunday. We know that because God rests on Saturday, right? So this is Sunday. Sunday. God speaks on Sunday, and he creates light. 
And it's good. And you're going to notice this as we go through here. Everything God created was good. And that is important for us to see. This is central to the nature of who God is. He's a good God who creates good things. And he divides the night and the day. God is preparing the earth for human habitation. He's breaking up night and day to give rhythm to our lives. Why? Because he loves us. Everything that God does, it's out of love. That is central to his nature. And there was evening and morning the first day. Now I think it's pretty clear here that this is speaking of actual literal days. You know, one of the issues that comes up when you're reading Genesis is this. Uh, in the original Hebrew text, this chapter is a poem. And uh, it's a beautiful poem. And, uh, you know, it has rhyme to it. It has alliteration. It has all the things which make good poetry good. And we read the Bible here. It's important for us to understand that the genre, the genre of any given text is important to how we read that text. You read a psalm differently than you read a, a, a list of generations. You know what I'm saying? Uh, genre is important for understanding a text. So we look at this genre here. And it's poetry, chapter 1. In English, when we read it, we miss out on that. We miss out on the beauty of the, of the original text, the original readers, because for them, this was just music to their ears. This was uh, a majestic, beautiful poem. It could have even been a song, perhaps. And, and the only way this really comes through in English is that we see the repetition of words like, there was evening and morning the first day. And so people have asked, you know, if this is a poem, if this is a song, then maybe this is not supposed to be taken literally. Maybe it's meant to be an artistic account of the creation rather than a literal account of how creation went down. What's my belief? Well, I like chocolate and vanilla, and I, I like to put them in the same bowl because I think they go really well together. And, uh, and it is poetic, absolutely. Of course, that's, you can't deny that. It is poetic. It is not just a cold rendering of the facts. This is artistic. But just because it's poetic and artistic doesn't mean that it's not literally true as well. So were these six literal days? I believe that they were, and that's, uh, that's what the text says pretty clearly. Let's continue from verse 6. God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and morning the second day. Monday. We love Mondays. God not only creates, but he illuminates. And not only does he illuminate, but he divides and separates. This is also a facet of God's nature, central to who he is. He distinguishes, he separates, he divides. Just like on the last day, he will divide and separate those who know him and love him from those who do not. Uh, he separates the goats from the sheep, and, and people say, God can't do that. He can't make distinctions like that. He has to love everybody. God does love everybody, but he also can and does make distinctions and divisions. Let's continue on verse 9. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruits bearing, or fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. 
The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kind, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Tuesday. God gathers the water together. He makes the dry land appear, and God speaks and creates plants and vegetation, fruits and vegetables and trees. Here you've got your onions, your blueberries, your strawberries, your kiwis, your huckleberries. This is a good God who loves to bless you with all kinds of amazing food. Uh, Without Tuesday, there's no cobblers. There's no fruit salads. You know what I'm saying? There's so... He is a good God who creates amazing things for us to discover and enjoy. He wants to bless us. Do you like food? I like food. I like to eat it. I like to taste it. Then I give thanks to God for Tuesday because he made this for us. Why? Because he's good. Because he loves us. God speaks here. And notice that this is the day when we see that by his word, he creates life. And this is what God's word does. It creates life. God is preparing the world for human habitation. He's preparing a good place for us to live, with good things for us to eat, with trees to give shade, with plants that we can use to make stuff and build stuff, all because he's a good God who loves us. And notice what it says. It says that he saw that it was good. Each day of creation, God looks at his creation and he sees that it's good. And when he creates man on Friday, he says that it's very good. There's one exception. Do you know what that exception is? Check your Bibles if you got them. One exception. Monday. Everything else is good. Monday? Not so much. Check it out for yourself. Tuesday is good. Wednesday is good. Thursday is good. Friday is very good uh, because it's almost the weekend. But Monday, not so much. So tomorrow morning when you wake up and you're all groggy and you just hit your alarm and you're like, Monday. Just know that you are being biblical. You and, you and God are on the same page. So, verse 14. God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for season, for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light to the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. This is Wednesday. We see that God made the sun. He made the moon, the stars. He establishes the rhythm of seasons and years. The question many people ask is, how is it that God created light and darkness, um, you know, on the first day, but he didn't create sun and moon and stars until Wednesday? How does that work? Well, I don't know, but one opinion is that God himself was the light of the world literally for three days. That's possible. But really, I think what we need to see here is this, that God created the sun and the moon and the stars. You see, in ancient cultures, again, this is an ancient text, in ancient cultures, even in some neo-pagan cultures today, modern subcultures, right, there are people who worship these things. They look at the sun and they say, awesome, that looks like something I should worship, you know? And this was, continues to be one of the most widespread forms of, of pagan animistic worship. Uh, the worship of nature, specifically the sun, the moon, and the stars. And what God is saying here is, 
Hey, you know the sun, the moon, and the stars? Yeah, I created those because I'm God, right? I made those things. So don't worship them. Worship me. I'm the creator. That's creation. God's word tells us in Romans chapter 1 that everybody worships something. You can't be uh, somebody who worships nothing. Everybody worships something. Everyone will either worship the creator or he will worship some part of the creation. And if people are wise, they will worship the creator and not the creation. Some people worship themselves. They are their own God. Again, worshiping creation rather than the creator. You know, there are two truths that you can go to the bank on. Number one, there is a God. And number two, you're not him. Okay, well, you need to get that clear too before we go on. So the point is, don't worship the creation, worship the creator. There's so much more that could be said. But uh, we're going to continue, verse 20. God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. We're only going to do five days. So we're going to stop with this day today. This is Thursday. Next week, we're going to look at the creation of man, the pinnacle of creation. We're going to talk about what it means to be created in God's image. Let's talk about Thursday. God creates the birds and the fish. He's making for us a beautiful world full of beautiful, interesting creatures for us to discover and enjoy. Uh, Notice one interesting point here. God spoke and created life both on Wednesday and Thursday, and he will do it again on Friday. And there's this important phrase here about how he created them according to their kind. Now that's important because it kind of blows the idea, at least biblically, out of the water of macroevolution. And and of course, you know, we believe in what's called microevolution, which is that animals can adapt, right? You can have a green frog that, you know, eventually adapts into a brown frog because of its uh, setting. But you never have a green frog that grows up to be a quarterback, right? And uh, uh, things reproduce according to their kind. Uh, When you see a pregnant lady, right, and you ask them, hey, do you know what it's going to be? Well, you kind of know the response. It's going to be a boy or a girl, and you don't have to ask them, well, a girl what? Like a girl goat? I hope not. You know, and they'd be like, well, we're just going to have to wait and see. You know, and then when they have the baby, they call you up, and they're like, guess what? It's a person. It's a girl person. And you're like, we really dodged the bullet on that one. That could have gone either way. It just could have been anything. No, Genesis tells us that from the beginning, things reproduced according to their kinds. God created them in their kind, and they reproduced according to their kind. There were variations in those kinds. There's lots of kinds of dogs and cats, but none of them ever becomes a rhinoceros, okay? So it's like when God created the living creatures, he created them in all their different kinds, and they reproduced according to their kind. So we're going to look at day six of creation next week because it deals with the the crown of God's creation, the creation of man. Uh, God created in him in his own image. We're going to talk about the doctrine of Imago Dei, and we're going to explore what that means next Sunday. But before we close, let me wrap this up. What did we learn from reading the first chapter of Genesis? Well, we learned a lot about God. 
And that's a good thing if we come to church. It's a good thing if you learn about God. And uh, what did we learn about God? We learned, number one, we learned that God is powerful. He is unique. He is the only one who can create something from nothing. Therefore, we should not worship the creation. We should worship the creator. He is sovereign. He is preeminent. He is above all, before all. Second, he is a loving God. Not only is he able to help, not only is he able to work, he is willing because he cares for you. And we see this in creation, that this is a good creation which he created in love because of his great love for you. And after we mess things up by our sin, which we're going to see here in a few chapters, God sends his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Why? Because he loves us. To make things right, to reconcile us to God because he loves us. Another thing we learn about God, he is a blessing God. He is a God who blesses. Here in the fifth day that we just looked at, we saw that God, he said that he blessed the living creatures that he made. This theme of blessing is a major theme of Genesis. The word blessing is used over 80 times. That's more than anywhere else in the entire scriptures. Our God is a God who loves to bless and loves to show favor. That's the very heart of who he is. Next, we see that he is a beautiful God. This can often be overlooked. He is a beautiful God. We read here, um, you know, the psalmist said that the heavens declare the glory of God. The creation tells us something about our creator, just like a, a work of art tells us something about the artist. One thing that creation tells us about God is that he is beautiful and he loves beauty. We have colors because God loves color. We, we have light and shadows because God made it. We have acoustics because God loves good sound. We have things that taste good and feel good. You know, all the things that make this life wonderful, they are gifts from a beautiful creator who loves us. We also see that he is a God who speaks, and the result of his words is life. They create order where there's disorder, where there's chaos, and he still speaks today, and his words still give life and order out of disorder. And finally, I'll just say this. He is a good God. That's what we learned from this section. This is the sum total of everything that is right and good. It is all in him. Everything he creates is good. Creation was good. So how did this world get so messed up? Well, because of sin, right? And with sin, as we will see, it entered the world, so did death, physically and spiritually. But the message of this book is that God is good, and God so loved the world that what did he do? He sent his only begotten son that who would ever, whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. What a good, glorious God. Let's just stand right now. We're going to pray and let's, we're going to sing one more song. And as we sing this song, let's just sing from our whole hearts. Let's give thanks and praise to our good and glorious God. Heavenly Father, we look upon this, the creation story, and we see what you're telling us about yourself, Lord. Lord, all these characteristics of who you are, that you are good, that you are loving, that you are gracious, that you are beautiful. And we look upon this and our hearts are just filled with thanksgiving and praise and appreciation. Lord, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you sent your son to die for us because you love us. Thank you that you did everything possible to reconcile us to yourself because you love us. And Lord, we declare today with our lips that you are a good God. Lord, and we choose again today 
to dedicate ourselves to you because of who you are. Lord, you are worthy of it. You are worthy of our lives, Lord. We are from you, we are going to you, and we belong to you now. And we celebrate that now with this last song. In Jesus' name, amen.